Now, I've got a question to start with this morning. Have you ever felt underwhelmed by something? Perhaps it was a, a movie. I remember going to see the last uh, Star Wars movie with John, and we agreed, didn't we, that it was a bit underwhelming. It wasn't quite matching up to all the hype that had been given. Perhaps it was that restaurant that somebody had raved about, but when you got there, it just wasn't quite as good as they'd said it was. Perhaps it's a toy that you've been waiting for for ages, for your birthday or for Christmas, and you get it and suddenly it's just not as good as you thought it was going to be. You're thoroughly underwhelmed. Now, I don't like being underwhelmed, but I'd still rather be underwhelmed than overwhelmed. To be overwhelmed is to be out of control, overcome by circumstances, unable to know what to do in that, that situation, unable to plot a course of action. I can think of many times in my life where I've really felt overwhelmed by the circumstances that I've been in, and I find it much worse than being underwhelmed. Well, as we come to this psalm, David is in just such a situation. We've got a a few clues to his situation there in the first couple of verses. You can see there, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you, and my heart is faint. He's in distress. He's crying out to God. He's at the ends of the earth. He's far away from home. There are two times in David's life when this could be true. When he was on the run from Saul in his younger days and when he was on the run from Absalom, his son, in his later days. When we add verses 6 to 8 where he talks about the king, it becomes clear that really this is his, uh, when he's on the run from Absalom, when Absalom tries to take the throne and David has to run away from his own son. He's away from God's holy temple in Jerusalem. His kingdom has seemingly been ripped from him by his own beloved son, no less. But we're not, uh, we've, we're, told, we're not told this situation, though, in the title. Often in the Psalms, we get given a bit of information about what's happening. We can work out that this is what is going on, but it hasn't told us. And this leaves us a bit more free to generalise the situation that we see. The context, as we read it, will help us understand the psalm, but it gives us a bit of permission to be a bit more general about what's going on. In this context, David is a believer, calling to God in his distress, feeling overwhelmed. He feels on the other side of the world from God, and his heart is faint within him. That word faint can be translated, and most of the time is translated, overwhelmed. His heart is overcome. And you can imagine from the situation that he's in why that is on the run for his life. But many things can overwhelm our hearts, can't they? Even if we're not in the same situation as David. Thoughts about the future, thoughts about the present, that piece of unexpected news that changes our life forever. Our hearts are far more sensitive than we let on, aren't they? They can soon be overwhelmed by the situations that we face. And when we think about the psalm like that, it sounds a little bit more like our own world, doesn't it? David is here a believer, overwhelmed. And we know that experience too. As believers, we are susceptible to being overwhelmed as well. So what does David do when his heart is feeling overwhelmed? What model does he give us in this psalm to follow? Well, he cries out to God for help, doesn't he? But what does he ask God for? Well, he asks four things this morning, and they're going to be our four points. The first one is, listen to my prayer, verses 1 and 2. Let me read them to you again. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. The first thing he asks is that God would listen 
to his prayer, that God would hear his cry. And it's easy to overlook that sort of petition at the beginning, that request of God. Because if you think about it, what right does any of us have? What right do any of us have to come before a holy God and ask him for anything? What does God owe us that actually when we talk to him and ask him for something, that he should give it to us? The Bible's very clear that our relationship with God is broken and we did the breaking. That we've offended God by our sinful attitude and that actually we owe God, not the other way around. So even a king like David can't just presume to waltz into God's presence and be heard. But the amazing truth is that the Bible teaches that here in 2018, we're actually in a better position than David was. You see, David was praying in his own name, if you like. He was coming before God seemingly by himself, at least in his experience he was. But we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ when we pray. We're not heard on, uh, based on the severity of our circumstances, how bad things are, or the goodness of our own character, but based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is our mediator, our go-between with God. So 1 Timothy verse two, uh, chapter 2, verses, verse 5, you'll find on the back of your notice sheet. It says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is there standing between us as we pray to God. Now it was for David, but David, I don't think, was as aware of that situation as we are. We come confident in Jesus' name. Not because we are worthy, but because Christ is worthy. And that must surely help us when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel we can't cope with a situation. We don't come to God in our own name, but in the name of Christ. We can be confident that wherever we are in the world, God will hear our prayer. We can be confident because even though we might not feel able to come to God, we might not feel like we're able to get the words out, Christ is standing there mediating for us. So as we pray, Christ brings our prayers before God. And God hears them because of Christ. So we can pray, listen to our prayer, but we can pray it far more confidently than even David could. Because if we're in Christ, we can be confident that that's being answered. So the first thing he says is, listen to my prayer. The second one is, lead me to the rock. Let me read you verses, second half of verse 2 and verse 3. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge a strong tower against the enemy. Here what David is doing is a prayer for protection. Two weeks ago in Psalm 59, we saw David speaking of God as his refuge and fortress. Well, here again, we get similar imagery. God is pictured as a refuge, a strong tower, a protection from the forces around him that seek to overwhelm David. But do you notice, it's not that David prays for God to be his refuge, and his strong tower. He says that God has been his refuge and his strong tower. God is already his protection here. God is already his shelter. So what does he pray? Verse 2, he prays, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. What's the rock? Well, God is the rock. God is the refuge. David prays that God will lead him to himself, take him to the rock. The term rock is used over 40 times in scripture of God. 
It's the idea of something strong and immovable. But it's also a refuge to hide in. In the midst of a storm, a rock could provide protection and shelter. If you were being pursued by other people, rocks were a brilliant place to go to be safe. It's like that old song, isn't it? Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. It's a place of safety. It's a place of protection. But why is it the rock that is higher than I? Why not just the rock? Well, the higher you are, the safer you are. If the floods are rising, get to higher ground. If the enemy is coming, get to higher ground. If all is lost, run to the hills. And height is about safety, but it's not just about safety. Actually, the term is used of God as well. So Isaiah 55 verse 9, if you look on the back of your notice sheets. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, their height is used a little bit differently. It's the idea of being above. Indeed, most high is used in the Bible uh, of God 54 times. But it's not just the idea that God is big and tall. It's the idea that God is above us, beyond us. He's powerful in ways that we can only imagine. He's transcendent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing. He's higher than us. So David may be high king at this point, but God is higher than he. God is higher than all. As Psalm 113 says, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. So God is that rock that is higher than David, a place of safety. A place of protection. Because David can't overcome his situation, can he, if he's overcome himself, overwhelmed. The situation, if you like, is too high for him. But there is a rock that is higher than David. A refuge safe and secure. A rock that is solid and secure. And what comfort is that when we feel overwhelmed? There is a rock that is higher than you, that is higher than I. There is a refuge we can go to, a place of safety. God himself. So when we're overwhelmed, what we need is for God to lead us to himself, to lead us there. We need him to take us by the hand and guide us to himself. He is what we need when we're overwhelmed. The safety and security he offers, the comfort of knowing our sins are forgiven, the knowledge that in Christ we stand safe and secure, safe in his hand. So we need God to bring us to himself because often when we're overwhelmed, that's often where we feel we can't go, isn't it? It just feels too much. So we need God to lead us to himself by his spirit who guides us to him. So David prays that God would bring him to that place of safety, the rock that is higher than David. And that's what we need too when we're overwhelmed, to be led to the rock himself, that he might be our comfort and security. But his prayer doesn't finish there, does he? He goes on. Next he prays, let me dwell in your tent forever. Have a look at verse 4. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Now, have you ever been in a really long church meeting? A really long church service? I have. Uh, actually, not to scare you, Laura, don't worry. But I think the longest one I've ever been in was my own baptism. When I was 16, you saw the picture. 
Well, that, I think, was about three hours into the meeting. Uh, We'd all been given about three minutes to give our testimony, because there were eight of us being baptised that day. And uh, one lady in particular took 45 minutes to share her story. There was a sermon there as well, and also it was supposed to be a closing word. The closing word lasted half an hour. So all in all, I think it was nearly four hours. Um, It was very embarrassing. I brought my parents who didn't go to church. Uh, I brought my friends from school. Um, It went on very, very long, and it wasn't, uh, yeah, it it was just embarrassing. But don't worry, we're not going on for four hours, don't worry. But uh, that might fill you with horror. But David here sort of pictures an everlasting church meeting. He says, let me dwell in your tent forever. The tent that he's referring to is the tabernacle. That's the, the forerunner of the temple in Jerusalem. The place where God dwelt in the midst of his people. The home of the famous Ark of the Covenant. And David himself had brought the Ark to Jerusalem. Uh, that it might be where he was. He wants to be in that tent forever. But it's more than just sort of wanting an everlasting church meeting. You see, David has been forced to run away from Jerusalem with Absalom. He's been forced to abandon the city that he loves, the city that has the Ark of the Covenant. And to start with, the people as he goes start to take the Ark of the Covenant out with him. And David tells them to carry it back. Have a if you turn in your Bibles, sorry, I haven't got these in the back of the sheets, but to 2 Samuel 15, just keep a finger in, uh, uh, in Psalms, but uh, 2 Samuel 15, it's on page 295, this gives us a bit of background. If you just have a look down at verse 25 of chapter 15. says this, then the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of the Covenant back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. So we're going to look a little bit more at 1 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 15, so just keep that open. Um, but really what he's talking about is he's talking about dwelling in the tent forever. Well, the tent for David was to be back in Jerusalem back in safety, restored, back where he was, vindicated. He's praying, actually, that he might be able to go back, because for him to dwell in the temple, uh, for him to dwell in the tent, he'd need to be in Jerusalem. He's praying for a return for his own exile, if you like, out of the land. The people who first compiled the Psalms would understand this. They had faced their own exile in Babylon. They had been to the ends of the earth, and they knew what it was like to long to be in the temple, back in the tent, Back in the special presence of God. Not that God wasn't with them in exile, but they longed to be home and safe with their God in the place that God had given them. And the wings he talks about there are places of safety. It's either the wings of a hen gathering her children to protect them against danger. Jesus uses that imagery in the gospel of himself gathering them like a hen gathers her brood under his wings. The other option is that the wings he's talking about are the wings of the golden cherubim who are sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the tent. Uh, The wings stretched out over the tent, overshadowing it, guarding it, keeping it safe. Either way, the image is of safety. And he talks about it being a refuge, doesn't he? Literally a place that you flee for protection. 
The wings are a shelter, a refuge, a place of safety, a hiding place. Well, what reason does God give him to a uh, give to God to allow him refuge? Well, again, he doesn't plead his own righteousness or his own goodness. Actually, if you turn back, sorry, turn back to Psalm sixty-one. Just keep your finger back in there. If you look at verse five, he talks about the things that God has done. That's the reason why God will be his protection. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. The reason that God will be his protection, the reason that he prays that, is because God has heard his vows and God has given him a heritage. God has heard his vows. Now, vows, I've spent quite a bit of time on this this week, they're really much at the periphery of scripture. They're right at the edge, really. You don't hear a lot about them. But it's really a prayer with an if clause, really. So if you do this, or if I do this, do you do this? And they're regulated in the Bible, but never commanded. In the New Testament, we seem to be steered away from that kind of prayer. But there's little mention of them through the Bible. They sometimes appear in a negative light. If you want uh, something to look up this afternoon, look up Japheth, who makes a really rash vow. and has to do something awful. But the interesting thing about vows is that they appear only a few times in the Bible, but they do appear in 2 Samuel 15. So 2 Samuel 15, uh, 7 to 10... We get the vows, perhaps, that are in David's mind, or why David has vows in his mind. 2 Samuel 15, 7 to 10. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord, see the if, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, say Absalom is king in Hebron. That's the only time vows are mentioned in the whole of 2 Samuel. And it's not David's vows, it's Absalom's vows. Vows about returning to Jerusalem. Now it's interesting that Absalom pays his vows in Hebron which is the former capital where David had been king. You'd think that he'd pay them in Jerusalem, wouldn't you, if that was what his prayer was about. Bring me to Jerusalem, and I'll offer you thanks in Hebron. It doesn't really make any sense. But Absalom's vows are a ruse. They're a trick. They're a plot. They're just an excuse to go to Hebron so that he can declare himself king in the place where David was declared king. I don't believe Absalom made such a vow about returning to Jerusalem. But I bet that Since that was the last thing he'd heard from Absalom, that was fresh in David's mind as he wrote this psalm. And David makes a similar vow, doesn't he? Here it is in full, 2 Samuel 15, 25 to 26. Then the king said to Zagok, carry the Ark of the Covenant back into the city. If I find favour in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do what seems good to him. David's vow was also about returning to Jerusalem. But his was a real one. A God-honouring one. Not holding God to ransom, but trusting in God instead. I wonder then if the force of our verse in the psalm is this. um, Bring me back to your temple, your tent, to Jerusalem. Because you have heard my vow. Not the fake vow of the usurpers to the throne. Not Absalom's vow. My vow that I'll be in Jerusalem. 
So David's vow is to do with his return. He's confident that God has heard it, so he asks for God to, to bring it about. So it's not confidence in himself, but in the God who has heard his vow. The second reason that he gives for God to be his refuge and bring him home is that God has given him a heritage. Do you see that? We can turn now back to Psalm 61, in the second half of verse 5. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. God has given him a heritage. Now, every other time that word is used in the Bible, it's to do with a plot of land. It's to do with somewhere that you'd live, an acre, a field, or, or something. Elsewhere, it's translated inheritance or possession. And this makes more sense now if we know that David is talking about going home. God has given David his place in Jerusalem. He's given him his plot, if you like, and his lot. He's given him a heritage of the one who fears his name. The one of a true follower of God. A God-fearer is another name for a believer in the Bible. One who knows God and has reverence for him. So if God has given him this heritage in Jerusalem... Who is Absalom to take it away? If God has given it to him, who can take it away? So his confidence of return rests not in his own goodness, but in God's goodness towards him. After all, David has made many mistakes in his life. Indeed, one of them was not raising his children very well. Uh, Indeed, you might have been feeling a bit sorry for David uh, as his son has taken over his throne. But the way that the Bible puts this across is that actually uh, this is a mistake that David has made with his son. But if his confidence rested in himself, he could have no hope of return, could he? But as it is, he doesn't have confidence in in himself, but in God. He alone can rescue and bring him home. And that's true for us too. He alone can rescue and bring us safely home. There's something more than just going back to Jerusalem here. There is that desire to be in God's presence, not just for a moment, but forever. Remember, this is about dwelling in his tent forever. The tent is a picture of God's presence, God's dwelling with his people. And that will finally only come about really truly when God brings in the new heaven and the new earth. When the dwelling place of God is with man, he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Whether he knows it or not, as David prays this, he's really praying for heaven. He's really praying for glory. He's praying, come Lord Jesus, bring in your kingdom. He's praying for that glorious rest for that final day. He was praying that we'd be gathered to God. I think he knew a little of that as he wrote this. He writes, dwell in your tent. Not just be in your tent, dwell in your tent. Live, make your house there. Nobody dwelt in the tent, in the temple, other than God. They visited the tent, they ministered the tent, they worshipped in the tent. But they didn't dwell in it. What David has in mind here is a little bit more permanent, isn't it? God and man dwelling together. He's looking forward to the future. So it's not totally wrong to say that in a way that he was praying for an everlasting church meeting. Our meetings, our services are a little foretaste of what is to come. Gathering together to meet God, especially as his word is preached. That's a little taste of glory. An imperfect, frustratingly fleeting taste but a taste nonetheless. And a taste that whatever taste it leaves in our mouth leaves us longing for the real thing. If it's been good, it leaves us longing for uh, the goodness that will be there. If it's not been great, it leaves us longing for the goodness that will be there. 
So here, as he's overwhelmed, he prays for the real thing. He prays for home. He prays for heaven. And the final thing that he prays for, uh, as he feels overwhelmed, is long live the king. Have a look at verses 6 to 8. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So I will sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Now this section might strike us as a little strange. Mostly because David, as he writes this, is the king. So, you know, speaking about yourself in the third person is a little strange, he said. But it makes more sense when you think about it in terms of David speaking himself as in his role as king. Israel needed a good godly king to prosper. And here, the very problem is that his kingship is in question. If David dies, Absalom takes over. And who knows what will happen to the nation? No, David knows that he must live for the sake of his people. He must rule so that the nation can prosper. But there's more to it than just that, isn't it? He prays not just that the king will live a long life, but that he'll rule forever. Not just that he'll endure through this generation, but that he'll endure through all generations. Now, some think this has just got to do with David's line. You know, the kings that would follow him. That doesn't make sense to me, though, because actually the person who's on the throne is someone who's of David's line. It's Absalom. He's not praying for Absalom's reign to continue. That's not what's going on. What he's praying for is that there would be a king who would rule forever with faithfulness and steadfast love to watch over him. A king clothed in God's faithfulness and love. And you might be thinking, is is David gone a bit mad? A king ruling forever when even he was running for his life? Not at all. God had already promised David just a few chapters earlier than the ones we read earlier in 2 Samuel. This is what it says in 2 Samuel uh, 12 and, and 13. Uh, sorry, 7, 12 to 13. When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now David, you see, already knows that another king will come from his line and that will rule forever. Could it be this promise that he has in mind as he writes this psalm? And who is he talking about in the psalm and in 2 Samuel 7? Well, it's not Absalom. He doesn't rule forever. In fact, Absalom's rule doesn't even last a year. Absalom was betrayed by his own barnet. He was hamstrung by his own hairdo. Uh, in a bizarre incident, uh, Absalom actually gets stuck in a tree by his own hair. If you read it, you read it in uh, 2 Samuel. Like to wear his hair long, got it caught in a tree, and it's stuck fast and just has to hang there until some men find him and kill him. So it's not Absalom, he doesn't rule forever. It's not even Solomon, David's son. He does build a house for God's name, but his rule ends in catastrophic failure as his heart turns away from God and the kingdom splits in two shortly after his death. No, the one that it's talking about here is none other than Jesus Christ, the son of David. The one from David's line who rules forever, enthroned before God, as you see in verse 7. So his prayer here, long live the king, is answered in Jesus Christ. One over whom death had no hold, who rules forever before his father in heaven. 
who died on the cross to take the penalty for our sins and rose again victorious as the conquering king of the universe. That's what he means by long live the king. He's praying really for the Lord Jesus to come. Well, how do we respond to this? We see it there in verse 8. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. We sing praises to his name. That's how we respond to this. With our lips and with our lives. We perform vows. Performing vows, as he talks about there, is referring to the sacrifice that is offered after a vow had been fulfilled. Really, it has to do with thankfulness as God hears and answers our prayers. We no longer offer bulls and goats. We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, dying to self and living to God, as we see symbolised in baptism, uh, which we're going to see in a few moments' time. So what do we pray when our hearts are overwhelmed, when we feel distant and far from God? Well, we pray, listen to my prayer, because I pray in Jesus' name. We pray, lead me to the rock, guide me to that place of safety in yourself, secure in your love and forgiveness, however insecure we might feel. We pray, let me dwell in your tent, bring me home to you, bring me safely to glory. And we pray, long live the King, may the Lord Jesus rule forever. We submit ourselves to his purposes. We pray his kingdom come. So situations may seem hard, but we can remember that he is ruling in faithfulness, in steadfast love. And he rules in ways that are not underwhelming. It fits the hype. The hype couldn't be any better, could it? And when we're done praying, we start praising. Praising the Lord for hearing our prayer and bringing us safely through when our heart is overwhelmed.